every day. Amazing humans are connecting with their power as individuals to change the lives of others, to create opportunities, to fight injustice, to care for the planet. It's my mission to raise these amazing humans up and in harnessing the power of their stories, bring energy, passion, and inspiration to your day, to connect you with your unique abilities to impact the world. Every time you click play on this show, you will be inspired, empowered, and reminded that with every decision, you have the ability to touch lives and leave a positive legacy. Thank you for joining us as we share stories from across the world. Thank you for believing that you can make a difference. This is Impact Stories with Nick Kershaw. Hello team, welcome to a new episode of Impact Stories with Nick Kershaw. So far, we've talked to some of my favourite charities that I've had the privilege to work with over the last few years. But as I've noted throughout, this is not a show simply to highlight the work of non-profits. This is about bringing all types of impact stories to life. For so many, the will to do good is there, but we often don't know where to start. And if that sounds like you, then this conversation is full of ideas, opportunities, and thoughts to inspire you to take another step forward in writing your impact story. Liz Warner and I first connected in December 2018 when she reached out, firstly about our our race in Guatemala, which she then went on to run, but also the challenges she was having on the start of her philanthropic impact journey. At that time, Liz had just started her Run to Reach campaign, a journey that saw her raise tens of thousands of dollars for women's empowerment organizations connected her to charities across the world and had her running a lot of crazy races as she looked to complete 30 marathons in 30 countries before she turned 30. This journey culminated in her finding herself in Yemen as the world shut down and needing to revisit how to finish this journey. And she found that answer in the creation of a global virtual event that blasted her fundraising goals out of the water. Most of the time, you'll hear interviews with Liz focusing on the running adventure that she had. And we could, of course, have definitely chatted about running all day. But I wanted to delve into her journey in impact and philanthropy. How to select the organizations to support. That's a big one. The mistakes she made, the lessons she learned, and the emotional ups and downs of the fundraising itself. Giving should be easy. Raising money for amazing people should be easy. And it can be. And that's exactly what this show's here to do. Offer the insight, support and information to make your impact journey easier, more accessible and more effective. This conversation will do exactly that. So check out Liz Warner. Uh, Planning out Run to Reach. And so I guess... We wanted to tonight talk a bit more from perspective of, we talked to a lot of social enterprises and charities so far, but we want to talk about it from the perspective of a fundraiser, a donor, someone on looking to um, explore philanthropic goals. So firstly, your challenge was way, way more and further and above just raising money. And I guess if you could just explain what was Run to Reach, what was it all about uh, and what was your story? Of course. So... Wow, rent to reach. I had just gotten married. Um, I was 28 at the time. And, you know, I was working a job that I didn't particularly enjoy, quite long hours. And for that reason, I really had to give up running because there really was just not enough hours in the day to, to go on a leisurely run. And I remember I was on my honeymoon and thinking to myself, you know, I lost a huge part of me with this job over the last couple of years where I had to give up running. And I also felt almost without a purpose. And so the idea popped in my head, you know, what if I ran 30 marathons before I turned 30? I sort of blurted it out. And my new husband uh, kind of looked at me and was like, that's pretty crazy because you've never, you know, you're 28 now, you're you have a year and a half until you turn 30. And um, 
you've never run more than a marathon in one year. How do you expect to run um, 20 more marathons in a year and a half? Because I'd actually already run 10 marathons at that time. But, you know, I sort of let the idea marinate. And I also thought to myself, you know, yes, I could actually maybe do this, but this project really needs something a lot bigger than myself to make it, you know, meaningful and powerful. And I also, you know, I felt ready to really jump into some kind of crazy adventure that involved impacting the world outside of my own small, very small personal bubble. So I, you know, I said to myself, what if I, in each country that I'd run the marathon in, what if I partnered and really, you know, researched and found a very cool local organization to work with and I could raise money for that organization while I was there in the country. And um, so that's when the whole project really started to take shape. I mean, of course, the marathon and the traveling mm. component is fun. And I think that allowed me to really dream and and get excited about the project. But really, I would say 90% of it um, came down to choosing these organizations and, um, doing the research to make sure that I felt really personally connected to them. So, so yeah, I got back from my honeymoon. I said yes to the idea. I had two months to plan it all. I quit my job and I decided I was going to do this. Um, and I think when I actually reached out to you, Nick, um, it was sort of like a month into planning and I was in total <laughs> panic mode because where does one start when choosing organizations in mm. countries they're unfamiliar with countries that obviously are dealing with very different issues. And, you know, I think also at the time when I started planning run to reach, I would had become pretty disillusioned with the NGO world, ironically, just because you read about so many controversies about mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. big international nonprofits who have definitely misused funds or exploited people, the very people that they're supposed to help. And, and so I think, you know, I really set some clear criteria at the beginning. The organization. So, so just to yeah. say, did, did you choose the, the what? it's chicken and egg question, what came first, the marathon, the country, the or the organization, or was it sort of a blend across across those, those kind of criteria? So that answer is twofold, actually, because initially during the two-month planning stage, I chose, I thought, you know, I need to set a schedule because this is an 18 month long project. So I'm going to choose the marathons first based on just geographical locations um, and sort of the time frame of how all the marathons lined up. And then I told myself for sure, I'm going to find really interesting organizations in each of these countries, which I did. A few months into the project, I actually, you know, originally I chose countries that I kind of selfishly wanted to travel to like the Seychelles and Cuba. Mm -hmm. And while I was excited to work with the organizations um, that I chose for each of these marathons, I, I really, I sort of got to a point in the project where I realized I had done it incorrectly. I needed to choose the organizations and then find races in these countries and then travel there. And mm -hmm. so I actually scrapped kind of everything I had been working on. Really? I didn't realize After that. The, like it was six months into run to reach where I had a month off. I was in the U S and I, I literally scrapped most of my plans. And, um, and instead I found, you know, I found this really amazing org organization called free to run that mm -hmm. happens to be yes. in Afghanistan. And so I decided to do everything that I could to get to this one marathon in Afghanistan that takes place in October. So mm. I really redid the whole project, which I actually don't think I communicated about um, just because I think everything was sort of on the go. And I was definitely figuring out everything um, as it was all happening, just because I did not have two years to plan this project. If anything, I was, you know, at a hotel in a random place and booking everything and trying to still get in touch with the NGO. And so everything was happening very last minute and at a very fast pace. So, so you, you, you sort of reshaped that 
yes. where did you start? Free to Run is an incredible organization yes. in Afghanistan. Obviously, when you're looking to do stuff around development and you're a runner, the one thing that I found that all runners share is, is that understanding that running itself is can be a development goal. Running itself is something that that empowers. Did did that sort of permeate through or were you pretty stuck to find organizations that that used running in all the different countries at that point? Yes. Yeah, so um also at the very beginning, I think I was a bit scattered brain and I chose a lot of different organizations that, you know, some were environmental based. They were all doing very different things. And then actually also a few months into the project, I sort of sat down and I think I was having a lot of issues personally figuring out how to communicate to potential donors of my campaign. My themes were all over the place with the organizations Mm. I was working with. So I, I realized I needed a very common central theme. And I also thought to myself, you know, what is the one topic that I feel most passionate about amongst all these organizations? And that was working with women. Mm. So, um, while I was sort of redoing my campaign six months in, I exclusively chose women empowerment organizations. Mm -hmm. So these organizations did everything from, I worked with one organization in South Africa that focused on family planning. Free to Run was more empowerment through sports. Um, My organization in Cote d'Ivoire was providing the resources for women to become entrepreneurs. And so they all did very different things, which... It was nice that sort of all of these organizations fell under the umbrella of being women focused, but they were quite varied, which made it really Mm. interesting for me because I obviously learned so much. And I personally believe, you know, it's not just empowering women through sport. It's sort of all these different components, providing healthcare, educational opportunities. It's this almost like holistic requirements for women to really tear down the barriers that hold so many of them back. So... Yes. And so you, you, <laughs> yeah. was Google your best friend? Did you take recommendations from different organizations? I mean, uh, we find this with impact all the yeah. time is we always spend a lot of time like meeting as many people trying to work out what's the best organization. Sometimes you meet an incredible charismatic leader, but then underneath yes. it, you're like, oh, okay, no, that, that doesn't actually, that's not quite what happens. Or it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely a mindful. And I think it, it scares a lot of people, which is why so many as you said at the beginning, you know, you've got these large organizations. It's so much easier just to write a check to a large organization than it is to research thinking that you may make a mistake. Absolutely. When I was originally researching, I did find there's this great foundation called The Life You Can Save. And they kind of do the due diligence for you where they have, I think, only maybe 50 nonprofits that they support having done an extremely strict vetting system of how transparent the organizations are, you know, a breakdown of exactly how much, how they allocate all of their funds. And so I actually contacted them originally mm. and I was like, this is my project. I'm so overwhelmed. Where do I start? And um, I actually did end up working with a few of the organizations that they recommended because it it is so overwhelming. You could spend a thousand hours doing your research. And, you know, the bottom line is you want to work with organizations that are transparent. And it's not to say a lot of these organizations don't want to be transparent, but they just frankly don't have the resources to to communicate all of these things to donors. So mm. that's another, you know, hurdle is like I this organization sounds amazing but like their website is pretty they terrible. Can't tell the story. And the storytelling is so absolutely. important. It's so important. So, you know, you know, I looked at foundations like The Life You Can Save Me that sort of helped me, you know, look at specific organizations that I ended up working with mm. and it also really, you know, I did honestly spend hundreds of hours Googling. That's like yeah. the honest answer to, and, and then reaching out to these organizations, I must've sent probably like at least 200 emails explaining my project. You know, I needed them to get on board with what I was doing because I not only of course wanted to raise awareness and funds for them, but I I wanted to go there. I wanted to meet them. I wanted to see their projects, not necessarily to, to volunteer my time with them, but to, to showcase what they do and mm. to use 
the small platform. I mean, I really started at zero with Run to Reach. Like I had only my friends and family who were following my project at the beginning, but I still felt very uh, motivated. You know, what can I do for them to showcase their work? That was really the the aim of my whole project. Um, So it really also took time out of their own hands as well. And for them to be supportive of me, um, mutually supportive. So, yeah, you know, and then finally, you know, it's some organizations I had to actually, you know, I was working with them for a bit of time and then they, they couldn't, I just felt like they honestly didn't fit certain criteria that I was looking for in terms of being able to provide me material that I needed to communicate to Mm. um, people who were potentially giving me money. And that was really, really important to me is that I didn't want to just show up at a country and then kind of, I really wanted everything set in place so that I could do my best job as well, supporting them. And so let's sort of move into that world of, of actually the fundraising. Um, Yeah. It's something that scares a lot of people. I know that firsthand that's, you know, whether it's 500 pounds or 50,000 pounds or, or, or however much. And I know you had done, incre- how much did it end up raising in the end? Yeah, a bit over $50,000. Which is amazing. And I think anyone who starts out on a fundraising journey, the idea that you could end up raising $50,000 is, is, is otherworldly, right? And um, so you just have to commend you massively for that. I guess what most people want to know is how on earth, yes, you've got an ambitious project, but how on earth do you begin raising that kind of amount of money um, on on the sort of just the sheer logistics of it? But then also, I guess the storytelling is a really important part of that. And how did you go about, you know, where did your first donations come in from? And then how did you grow that? I mean, fundraising was definitely like, hands out, <laughs> the most difficult part of the project. It kept me up countless nights during the campaign. Um, you know, I think of course everyone's focused around the marathons. How did you physically do this, run all these marathons? And it was like, no, no, no. Like the marathons were the day off. Um, but I think, um, so I had these two months to plan run to reach beforehand. And I told a bunch of friends and family. And when I launched the project, I actually raised like a significant amount, I think maybe $5,000. And for me, that was the most I've ever raised. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so it felt really good. But, you know, actually, originally, I had this big fundraising goal of raising 100000 That was my big goal. Not, again, knowing anything about fundraising, how it worked, the strategies involved. Mm. But I um, think it what really actually helped is as I was traveling and, and going to some of these places and meeting really interesting people, connections and networking did end up helping. Mm. However, um, I did, you know, say six months, even a year into the project, I reached, you know, I definitely experienced donor fatigue where I had asked every single marathon, which sometimes was like a week apart or two weeks apart. Mm. And, and I think that was actually what was a it was a blessing and a curse to work with so many organizations because sometimes I felt, you know, I was in this one country working with this one organization, pouring all of my energy into, you know, shining light on their work and and trying to get donors to, to contribute. And then I was immediately switching, you know, the next day to a different country, a different marathon, a different organization. And so it was sometimes hard to get people really invested in one mm. cause even though they all sort of, again, fell under this umbrella theme of being women focused. But um, I think that was actually the most soul crushing part of the project was I would be at a marathon. I do the whole, you know, communication campaign about what the NGO does. And then I would get maybe three donations because Mm. people had given the marathon before or were planning to give at the end. So, you know, it was really it was really tough. And then I also, because I had this big goal of having, of raising a hundred thousand dollars, I also thought to myself, you know, 80% of my donations are largely through social media. You know, that's $5 or $10 Mm. or $20. How do I up this game? And so I actually spent maybe a couple of months trying to get corporate donations. Mm. 
to try to see if I could really get those, those larger. Needle a bit, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that in itself was, was pretty crushing because again, I just didn't have time on my hands and I, I started from zero. I didn't start as a celebrity. I didn't start, you know, as someone who had a massive following. And so mm it was kind of always this reality check, you know, I contact these big companies to get them to donate and they're sort of like, well, what's in it for us. And I think yeah. that was, it was hard. And, you know, as much as for me, it's like, okay, I think I have a great story to tell. And here's this, I'm committed to finishing this project, but it's, it's quite hard. Um, these other components involved that you, when you go into a project like this, you're like, oh, this will be easy to get a few, you know, yeah. $10,000 donations from big corporate companies, but it's, it's, um, it's a lot harder than you think. So Absolutely. that was, the, and you, yeah. you know, you talk to, um, Nick Butter and his, you know, two year journey and, you know, yes, there's a logistics council flight, all of the different things. Um, but, but he will say the same, exactly the same. It was just like trying to raise money for and he only had the one cause that was a you know, really simple cause to understand when it comes to prostate cancer in men that that still is draining and it's i mean is it like i certainly think this is the case for me when i've gone out fundraising you know is it hard to separate that from the personal element if people aren't donating it's like oh is that because people are fatigued or is it because they just don't like me or have I selected the wrong charities? I mean, where were those thoughts going at that time when things were a little bit more difficult? I think, you know, I, I actually had a huge breakdown. Um, I would say three quarters into the project for that reason. I was like, what, what am I doing wrong? I think around that same time when I had like a, a pretty bad panic attack, I had spoken to an older man who had also done crazy challenges around the world, all for fundraising. And he was a very nice guy, but, you know, he raised close to $250,000 in one year and was just telling me again that it was mostly from $20 donations. And I sort of got off the phone with him and I was like, what is, is wrong mm. with me? You know, <laughs> what, what could I be doing more? You know, I think I also, it made me really insecure. I'm, I'm not a super extroverted person. Like I don't have this large personality where I go on and I'm just this, like, I'm not, I don't have a salesperson personality, mm. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and so I really second guess and get second guess myself, you know, do I need this type of personality to make my campaign successful and to fundraise as much money as, as I feel like I should be fundraising at this point. And so it really came down to a lot of self-doubt and mm. I became very self-conscious of doing it the wrong way. And, and again, because I had this looming massive fundraising goal kind of over my head and, and at many points during the project, I, I felt like a failure if I didn't reach this, which sounds ridiculous, but I think when you just have this idea and, and, and it's, it's even more than the goal. Like I, I felt like I wanted, I wanted to raise this money so badly for these organizations as, mm. as much awareness as I can, I can, you know, raise for them with the communication and campaigns, et cetera. You know, money is obviously what will allow them to move forward with all of their projects. So yeah, there was a lot of pressure involved that um, I think a lot of people didn't know was going on in the background. And um, yeah, it was very tough at times. Mm. And so when it comes to that, you said about, you know, didn't know whether you're telling the story the right way. Did you, did you find that there were certain ways of putting things that did you ever get sort of negative reactions? Um, was there ways when you told a story that always worked we're always really careful about using words like vulnerable because i don't think children are vulnerable i think they're children and when you label them as vulnerable you've you've created something there that doesn't the children aren't describing themselves as vulnerable so that kind of wording how did you work that out because you know on the flip side of that we know testing wise vulnerable does really well when it comes to fundraising so you have this question i mean and how did you start tackling that there were a lot of existential crises as well during the year, I think. Um, and I became hypersensitive to this. I did not want to portray myself. You know, obviously, social media was a huge component of how I spread the message of my project and these organizations. But 
I really did not want to convey myself as a sort of white savior going mm. to these countries, saving them by raising this money. And like, I, but at the flip side, it was, you know, necessary to put myself in the story or else there would be no sort of midway connection from donors to these organizations. So I was constantly having this like internal battle with myself with how do I, distance myself from coming off this way and do I come off this way when people look at my project do they just think I'm this like privileged white girl which I am like in every Mm. sense like being able to take on this project is was an incredible privilege but I I did not want to make the whole story on just me and and sometimes I would almost get repulsed by my Instagram because I look at it and I would be all over the page, but I really, it was sort of this necessary evil that you really have to go back and forth. Um, and I really, I developed a pretty big complex around the whole issue. And, um, but, you know, going back to your sort of that whole notion of using the right wording when you're communicating about NGOs, you know, I think at one point I created this whole communication plan. I would mostly get it validated by the organization before I posted. And I remember one organization, you know, I often use the word beneficiary and they were like, no, please never use that word. The aid, you know, the development um, world is evolving and we tend to use, if you talk to any NGO, a lot of NGOs are using the word members now. Mm. So very subtle terminology, obviously, that again, I don't know all of these things, but it it really was just sort of a a learning opportunity for me. And it, it does make you reflect. Obviously, people respond, donors respond to images and, and wording, you know, they're very sensitive to that. But you, I think it is more important to remain as sensitive as possible to the organizations you're working with, and especially you know the people that they're that they're also supporting. Mm. It's it's a it's a constant. I think a constant challenge amongst all 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 charities as well of like how do we tell our story without it undermining the people that we're trying to to support or the the goals that we're trying to look for and how do we get people to relate to our story? And, you know, I, I remember uh, sitting with, he was the former, former head of UNICEF UK. And he said, there is no, simply no better way to do fundraising than to take people to project. It's just that there's nothing compared to it. We can do a, an evening, we can tell the story, we can do a film, but until people go and understand and see not only the, the situation, but the solution, mm-hmm that's when you start to get people really engage with your work. And until you do that, it's really hard. And I think that that's certainly something with the organizations and the size of organizations you were supporting. Yes. It's very hard to get people to come and visit the project. It's, there's a lot more to that. And then also there's how you visit a project with with the uh, nuances of, of visiting a project and understanding what was actually seeing and how. how. Were there any projects which you felt super... Uh, engaged with and and conversely i guess uh no actually let's just focus on the positive here like like what are the projects how when did you see it done really well what are the marathons that stick in your head when it comes to this was an incredible project visit you know i think going back to free to run what was um Mm. in afghanistan what was really powerful about that experience and i should also preface by saying that most of the marathons, I had the opportunity to visit the projects, but there were some marathons where it just was not possible. If, for example, I did a marathon in Yemen and I could not personally visit the projects because they were in conflict zones or, you know, one, um, the organization I worked with in Zimbabwe, you're just not allowed to have one-on-one contact with the beneficiaries and seeing their projects. So it was kind of, I say that, but um, run to reach or run to reach, um, free to run. I spent about 10 days before the marathon with the actual women, the Afghan women runners. And so what was really just so special about that whole experience was kind of just shifting my whole perspective. You know, obviously I had a lot of expectations coming into Afghanistan, working with Afghan women. I'm not going to lie. I had sort of an image in my head that 
these women would be in a way kind of timid and and really cast under the shadow of living in a very conservative, regressive society. And I think what were the most kind of eye-opening experiences for me is just being completely shaken. And in fact, these Afghan women runners were fierce and confident and were extremely cultured. And they weren't, they all were coming from very different backgrounds. They weren't just coming from families that allowed them to go to school. Like they all had their own individual challenges. So I think it was obviously going to to projects and and seeing the work that's being done, but it's actually getting in-person contact with the people who are being supported by the work, hearing their stories and just hearing how transformed their lives have been from being a part of these programs. Mm. And for example, with Free to Run, you know, essentially what they do is provide safe spaces for Afghan women to participate in, in sporting activities there, whether that's training for a marathon and, and but also giving them sort of life skills. And so many of the women I was talking to, they were hoping to become president in the future. And so I think it's just really, again, listening to so many of these the people are supported by these programs, their stories, you know, how they have developed through their own character building and, um, and capabilities themselves too. Um, another really amazing experience was going to, to Cote d'Ivoire and, mm. uh, and that particular NGO uh, trains women from some of the poorest neighborhoods in all of Abidjan, which is the capital there to become entrepreneurs and starting their own businesses and and um and again just sort of sitting down and hearing all of the really creative businesses that these women have been given the tools to develop and allow them to become self-sufficient and independent in their own right too I guess what I'm trying to say is is really just come down to to listening to the stories of a lot of the um the women that we're supported by all of these different organizations and just getting to hear about their own personal experience. Cause as much as, you know, it's absolutely amazing to, to hear it from the organization itself, really getting the opportunity and privilege of meeting the people that they support is, is mm. yeah, was an honor and um, was definitely the most eye-opening experience. Mm. I think, I guess, was there any project in particular that stands out as that's really innovative. I've not seen that. And you know, you, you visited so many different projects in that in that year and a half and researched so many different. Is there one that stands out as they're seeing this in a completely unique way? And I love it. Like that is something that can transpose across nations, or even just that something that's just so perfect for here. I don't think it'd work anywhere else. But so what were the sort of innovative ideas or or ones that you would never have thought of? You know, I think it's not necessarily doesn't come down to a a wholly unique idea. But what I realized as I was working with so many different organizations and that as I was sort of picking, you know, having my own observations about what is going on, what sort of looks like it's working and, and what isn't working, you know, I... I finally found a term for the organization that I personally feel like is the most impactful. And, and I'm sure you obviously know this term from, from all your experience with impact to yourself, but it's community-based organizations. So organizations that really go in and don't necessarily have this one size fits all approach that many international organizations do. It's really going in and giving community members a participatory role in the development conversation. Obviously, you need to take into into account the cultural aspect of a lot of these communities. And and I think so many NGOs don't do this. And when I explain it out loud, what is a community-based organization? It's like, oh yeah, duh, you have to obviously work with community members and, and really understand the roots and all of the intricacies that make up their cultures. But the truth is a lot of big organizations really don't do this. And they spend mm. thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a project. And then when it comes down to launching it, it doesn't take off because all of the beneficiaries of the members, you know, don't, they don't even understand what it is because it just doesn't fit into the cultural fabric, fabric of the societies themselves. So I think while it's not necessarily all the organizations I work with, 
I'd have to really, there probably are very unique projects that I came across, but sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, I work with 20 different organizations. <laughs> but I think in their own ways, they really, all of them, including CEDES in mm. Guatemala, you know, they really are working with community members, not just telling them you should do this, but actually listening to their desires and mm. how can we build their capabilities you know, make these programs sustainable. And in that, I honestly feel like that's a very unique system that any NGO could could offer. And it's just, it's more rare than you would imagine. I think about this one project on the north coast of Colombia that I visited when we were looking at a race there. And it was working with former members of the uh, paramilitary terrorist networks who have continued the war for for you know 50 plus years in Colombia and i they they took me along and i sat down in a really small room i had to go through three levels of security to yeah. to enter this room and i was sat with a group of paramilitary ex paramilitary soldiers who have all reformed um and have tried to integrate themselves back into society and is absolutely the most intense eye-opening completely changed focus because post-conflict is a whole different topic that we you know is is not something we want to go into now but what we're looking at is is these people he was saying you know when i was 17 i was given a watch to join join in so i did and then i was given something else and i was given some money and i had no i had no job opportunity so this was like it wasn't that i had some political belief here this is just obviously where i was going to to go because i was getting something whereas i wasn't getting something from society and now i go to an interview and i feel and this is a you know a, a very intimidating man to to sit down with and he's saying i feel so insecure I'm scared talking to you because I know what I've done. I know that past. And so that whole process of post-conflict, I found it so fascinating because it's so easy to develop concepts, but until you talk and understand and listen to what it's actually like for someone who's trying to reintegrate to society and understand that side of things, how on earth can you develop a program? How on earth can you develop a program that fits the fact that someone who is an ex-soldier would feel insecure. Because that I, that's not something that comes to mind when you describe someone like that. You wouldn't think that man is going to be scared sitting in a room with, with a small Greek man, right? Like, But he is, and he is when he goes to an interview. And he is because he knows at some point when he interviews for a job, they're going to ask him about that. Yeah, and so okay, he's got right? that stigma. Yeah. And so that's so, you know, that when you talk about that community-based thing, I think it's, it's something that's like... Uh, you know, as much as I'm a big fan of of tr trying to to make sure that we're changing government policy wherever it's possible, it yeah. still has to be started yeah. from that community based understanding and listening, and not labelling. Yes, yes, absolutely, and um, and I I really feel to me that's the future of development is how do we scale down these, I mean, and it's not to say these huge INGOs like, you know, like UNICEF or mm. they're not to say that their work has not been absolutely amazing and they have changed, they haven't changed countless lives. It's just that I think us as individual donors, as myself doing Run to Reach, mm. I felt I do feel like it's necessary to to do your research and to really find the NGOs that are are going the extra mile in including and in sort of this cultural element, um, this community element in their work. Because again, I just and especially doing my research and. I think it's hard because I'm not obviously an expert in, in this field. And that's also something I'm putting that it's a big, mm. you know, factor in all of this, but I do think, you know, I am still an individual donor. I do still want to contribute my time and money towards these organizations. And I think it is really, really important to make sure that they, there is a huge community focus level in the work that they do. Mm. Or like and, just really involving the community, absolutely. And how did you, when you say research, you know, you, we talked about the foundation before that that gives you those those kind of ins or ideas or concepts. Did you did you focus on anything? 
academic theory of change, these kind of things, or, or, or were you, as you said, you're learning. And I think, I think that's why we, you know, I really wanted to talk to you because for the majority of people, yeah. the understanding, the intricacies of what makes good philanthropy, what makes good giving, how to, how to maximize your donation. People, majority of people for sure would struggle to know where to start with that. And even after a year, two years, we'd probably still be like, the more I know, the more, more I feel I don't know. And that's certainly been, been my journey in it is, is the more that I've focused in on one country, the more, oh, I've completely missed the impact of 36 years of civil war in Guatemala. I've com- I, 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 I see that it's there, but it's only really in the last month I've suddenly gone, oh, hold on. I now start to see how that's affected things in reality. So where, do, where, what would be your recommendation, your number one, you know, looking for community-based uh, organizations, but how would, how would you then advise someone to go about a project like this, or even just looking into their own philanthropy and how they donate? I think it, you really need to start, and you know, this is an issue for a lot of people, but I think you need to first figure out what cause do you feel personally and frankly, maybe even emotionally connected to, because I think you do need to have this strong tie if you're going to really invest your time into the research. And I, you know, I think, again, there's so many different causes out there. I think as the world operates now, we have a million things to do at any one point. Sometimes we lose sight over that one thing we really care about beyond what's mm. in our immediate, what's right in front of us. And so I would say, start there, find your cause. What are you passionate about? Obviously it can be more than one thing, but, <laughs> and then, you know, it's, it's even choosing a region you know, it's mm. maybe you want to, I, I really would suggest going smaller because your impact on these smaller local organizations will, will go far. And oftentimes these organizations are actually quite transparent and they want to tell you exactly how they're going to spend their money. Whereas these large organizations, again, not to say that they are doing bad work, but they have no, I mean, it's a huge, it's a machine. Mm. Um, and so I think it actually, you know, while it might be harder to find a smaller, more local organization in the long run, you're, you're, it's much easier to see where your money is going towards. So I would say, choose a cause, choose a region. And from there, really dig deep into, into looking at organizations that tackle very specific problems. And again, you know, if you reach out to these organizations, which I did for all of mine, they were so enthusiastic most of the time about working with me. And, you know, especially if they're going to be smaller, more local, they, I mean, having an individual donor reach out to them and say, wow, I think your organization is absolutely amazing. Could you please provide me more information on this or this or this? They would be over the moon. And anyone, for the most part, who's really starting an organization that's on the local level or is grassroots, they're doing it for the right reasons. And I think after doing Run to Reach, I really, you know, I started this project a bit disillusioned. And I think I actually, by working with so many smaller local organizations, I really regained my trust of a lot of these organizations, just knowing that they, yeah, that they really care. And again, it just goes back to, goes back to doing your research and, um, and just, and working with, with more smaller local organizations, I would say. And then at the end of all of this, obviously the last few races were hit by by this year's events. I don't yeah. like to, I don't like to go too much into them, but what you did, um, I went off running for you. Um, I did a, a long, a long run, uh, video called in with Andrew Shapin, who also ran Guatemala with you. Um, he was running around <laughs> setting, you know, struggling actually. He, he, I remember on that run having a video call with him. He said, the problem with the pandemic, Nick, is when you're running around the, there's no place to go to the toilet anymore, um, which was a, a, an oversight that, you know, I, I'm sure you felt terrible about. Um, <laughs> that last event, talk us yeah. through it, because because something that I think is is we talk about with all of our runners when it comes to donations is, yes, going out and saying, I'm running a marathon, I'm doing this, will you sponsor me is one thing. 
but the best donors, and and I think um, I, the name that's to mind is Becky Becky Cohen, who was uh, on on that race as well. Phenomenal fundraiser because she didn't think about it that way. She thought about events. She thought about ways to engage people on it. Talk us through that final run and how you went about it, how much it raised, all of that, because it was a pretty crazy day for you. Well, I say day, it was a month, two months probably of work. Oh, it was absolutely amazing. Um, so obviously COVID happened early March. I had two marathons left to go to complete the 30 marathon goal. The crazy story, I was actually right as all the borders were were shutting or were closing, I was at the marathon in Yemen almost wasn't going to make it out there. And I remember receiving a message from my sister as soon as I got access to internet, because for a week I didn't have any Wi-Fi as the world was crumbling down. And she told me, you know, Liz, before you look on the news, you need to know that your project probably has to pause and the world is, is kind of closing. And, but don't worry, we'll come up with creative ways on how you can finish it. But I think you, you might not be able to, reach your goal before you turn 30. And, you know, the world really was crumbling and there wasn't a second, really, there wasn't a second where I felt sorry for myself that my last two races were canceled. There were a lot of very big plans in place, but there were bigger, bigger things to worry about. And I think it was, you know, I came back to Paris, the world was on lockdown and I sort of actually put it out there on a few Instagram stories. You know, I, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. I'm still very determined to to reach my goal, but I don't know what I'm going to do. And a few people messaged me. They're like, you know, why don't you organize a virtual marathon? I would love to run it. I would love to support you. And so I think that's sort of how it all started. And I told myself, and there were so many virtual marathons going on around this time, Mm. as you know, (laughs) which actually was, I mean... Of course, because everyone is still very motivated to run, but but I knew that I was up against a lot of competition, not in a bad way, but I, I needed to find an edge to to the kind of virtual race that I was I was um, organizing. So I decided this race is actually going to be I'm going to give all of the the amount raised towards the Who's COVID nineteen fund and. I also told myself, you know, it'd be really cool if I could get over a hundred countries involved or runners from over a hundred countries. And I think what was so cool about this virtual race is that I had at this point amassed a decent audience who were following, who really had started following Run to Reach from, from point zero. And mm. here I was, my project was sort of all over the place and, um, and I sort of put it out in the world. You know, would you you know, would you run this big virtual race with me and immediately had this, I mean, again, it was sort of going back to feeling so self-conscious about fundraising and why am I doing this? No one's actually following this. No one really cares. And then the response, once I launched this virtual race to have people around the world join me for my 29th marathon. I mean, it, there are many highlights of this project, but I think it was truly the most incredible thing to have come out of it. Um, again, just connecting with runners in Bhutan and, and, you know, the most, the most random countries, Burkina Faso, you know, Djibouti and, and just seeing them really excited to run my virtual race. I was sort of like, what? Like it was almost Mm. imposter syndrome to the extreme. And with that, I raised the most money out of any marathon, which was close to, I think, it was fourteen or fifteen thousand just with that marathon alone, um, and again, that was mostly like twenty dollars donations. So that was absolutely epic. And I think throughout the day, um, sort of my Instagram was blowing up of people running that marathon. I mean, you running the marathon in, in Wales, and yeah, you know, people runners all over the world kind of uniting for this one cause, which was fighting against COVID at the end of the day. Like, yes, there was my project, but that particular marathon was, you know, sort of this global fight of what all of us were experiencing. So I think going back to fundraising strategies, it's exactly what you said. You know, you, you need to allow potential donors to feel personally, really 
personally involved with your project and to also, I mean, I think the key was, was really raising money for a cause that everyone was invested in. It wasn't something that you needed to sort of educate yourself about. It was something that everyone was, was going through. So that was an absolutely power, yeah, hugely powerful moment um, in the whole project. And I still, when I think back to the last few months of Run to Reach, it, yeah, it was a beautiful silver lining in, in everything. Mm. I mean, you did an incredible job because it is, I mean, and a virtual race sounds like it's easy. I, I think they're more stressful and harder than an actual race is my experience of putting on a virtual one. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was personally, especially since I had this big goal of getting a hundred countries involved, I must've, I sent so many personal DMs to people I did not know, literally begging them to, mm. to sign on board. And I think that was actually, um, I think probably one of the most time consuming aspects of it, obviously getting people signed up, but getting people I actually don't know in very far countries to get them signed up. But I, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of people I ended up reaching out to, and I'm probably actually going to go visit one, someone um, in a few <laughs> months in Senegal. So you know, again, it's, it's, it's really about the connections and, um, when you take on any kind of project like Run to Reach or Impact Marathon, mm. you know, launching Impact, you never know what's, what's going to happen or who you're going to meet. And, and especially, you know, having all of these races being all over, I think that's, what's just obviously so special and powerful about running itself is that it's just transcends borders and mm-hmm. political issues. And, um, I think with this big virtual race, it really was just a celebration of all of that. Mm. You hit it. You know, there's never in our lifetimes, I, I, I imagine, in fact, I'm pretty confident there's never been a single event that just has impacted the entirety of humanity. Right. And we've all lived in, in, in bubbles within that for sure. Um, but there's, you can't think of a single time when all of us can go, yeah, I, I understand. I can relate to that. Even if it's, and there's people who've, who've done well through the pandemic. There's people who there's countries that have done better, but everyone can understand the challenge of being forced to stay indoors. Right. That one single thing. Right. And so that, that uniqueness when coupled with the instant connection that humans can have with running, once you put those two together, it's actually such a powerful moment that I think is just, just incredible. And, and what you, what you achieved that day was, was absolutely remarkable because you, you are just, you know, not to undermine you, but you are just one human. Um, <laughs> and I think that is absolutely amazing what you achieved as one individual human. Absolutely. No, when I, I'm but that's like, it, isn't it? No, I, I think the day of the race, I almost like had to put my phone away because I was like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. I am just one person. And, and, you know, just to see the level of excitement, I was like, well, how can anyone be that excited about a virtual race? But, but, you know, everyone was. And, um, and, but again, I think that just comes down to the beautiful. And sometimes I think I look at what I'm doing. This project is around running. Running is literally just going outside, putting one foot in front of the other. And, and then you look at, you know, you look at impact, you look mm. at all of these incredible, not just my own, you know, not just French reach, but so many personal projects around the world are just the central theme is running, but then it just mm. grows from there. And that's just. And we saw what Danny did last week with run, run and, oh God. you know, insane, in Insane. And like, it's just, again, I think what is so special too, is that it, while it is very difficult to get runners from every single country in the world to participate mm. in a virtual race, it's doable. You know, it yep. just takes the internet and a few very well-connected people to make it happen. And that's yeah. really, yeah, it's truly the coolest thing in the world. And I think that that is is the perfect segue into the, the you know the final question, which I've asked everybody: is what makes you? There's a lot of people who are stressed about this year, who are uncertain about the future. Even before going into this year, we we there was plenty of things that were making people worried from from Black Lives Matters, not and a 2020 thing that has been around for some time now, and climate change and uh, Brexit and all of these things. What makes you optimistic? What makes you positive about humanity and the future of humanity right now? I do believe that 
you know, more than ever, there are a large number of people who are trying to become enlightened in their own way on these topics that have been largely ignored for tens of hundreds of years, such as racism and, and even climate change. And so I think there is, because of the internet being so accessible to, to a large number of people, not everyone, there is sort of this huge sense of empowerment now where people can take it in their own hands, including myself. How can I learn more about the development world just from Google? Like I, mm. I didn't get a master's degree even though sometimes I wish I had, but, um, and so I just through my project and having to figure out a lot on my own, I do believe that there are a lot of people like me, not sort of putting myself on a pedestal, but that feel empowered to, to educate themselves and to do anything they can as one individual to make the world quote unquote, a better place. I think, you know, especially just meeting so many really passionate people about, you know, doing that very thing, being one person and doing whatever small or big thing that they can to make an impact on the world. I just have a renewed sense of hope for humanity mm. just through these individuals that I've met. Cause I really think it, it takes all it takes is one person to sort of have this ripple effect on, on others. And so, um, yeah, I think there, if you look at the news, obviously it's just drowning in negativity, but I, that's the reality. That's it's, it's mm. not a 2020 thing. I think that's, it always kind of bothers me when, when people are like, Oh, this year has been terrible. This year has been terrible for the world at large, but like, it's been pretty bad for many specific countries for a long time, you know? And so yeah. I kind of get annoyed because I'm like, yeah, it's been bad for like the Western privileged world, but like, what about, you know, all these other countries that have been suffering for forever now? But, but yeah, I, I think it just goes back to, to meeting really incredibly passionate people that mm -hmm. um, are dedicating maybe not necessarily their entire jobs, but even just time on the side of investing in a cause or investing in an organization that are doing really amazing things. And um, I feel like that's what's giving me hope is, mm. is being, yeah, is meeting these really inspiring people that are doing really big things. And I think I love the fact that the more that you've learned about the different organizations, the more inspired you've become. And the, the fact that you started out this, this, this conversation saying you went into this concern about, about charity, you went to this sort of suspicious maybe, or not suspicious, yeah. the wrong words, uh, you know, just questioning it and is. come out of it going, actually that there, there are some incredible people in this world and, in every country you're finding good people fighting and making progress and genuinely making progress. And it may not always look like it from the outside and it may not be linear. And some organizations will have taken a back step. Other organizations may have jumped forward. All of this is just that there the progress is not linear. And I think that that's, that's just, uh, but the, the people that are on the front line, they're continuing all the time. Right. Yeah, and it, 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 I, I personally feel a sense of, of huge responsibility to use whatever I have to back them up. Right, absolutely. absolutely. And that's really exciting. And if we continue to do that, as many people as possible continue to back up those who are forging forward in their communities, then there, there, there's every reason to be optimistic. Absolutely. I could not have put it better myself. You, you <laughs> did you put it better. I think you did put it better yourself. No, but. no, 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 no. <laughs> um, no, but absolutely echo everything you said. And, mm. um, and I also think it, this project really also made me question, you know, what, what is keeping some of these organizations back? You know, what is, you know, why are people giving to more organizations over others. And so I think there's also, for me, I my background is, is in communications. I was always working in marketing before Run to Reach. And so I think um, I really came out of this project, even in my own capacity as one an individual, how can I continue to support organizations by providing the skills that I have and enabling them to communicate what they do in a more, in a 
not mm. in a better way, but in a more, I guess, appealing way that could get people to, to really, to, that can grab their attention and that could essentially translate into donated dollars. So I think there's also that, that element too, is, you know, for me personally, I feel like I've questioned, you know, how can I continue rent to reach, but how can I personally continue NGOs with the skills that I have um, or with the background that I have um, that could sort of help them in any smaller, mm. big way too. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat and to talk through things from, you know, I, I've, I've listened to your other podcasts and it's, it's, so, it's been so running focused and I wanted to delve into the other side of things and hear that journey from today all the way back to to a, a Skype call from Atlanta to Ottawa um, back. It is wild. Back. I still, Don't. I was... I remember thinking when you responded to me, I was like, oh my God, he responded. <laughs> he must be so busy. And he started this really amazing organization. Like I was, I I also remember where I was when I re- received mm. your response. So I'm glad that the <laughs> the lines. Um, we traveled to Guatemala together and thank you, Nick, so much for your hey. support. Uh, no, for thank you. Hey, it's Hi. Nick here. Just a quick message before you go. If you have been inspired by today if you've learned new things then please leave a comment leave a review share it with your friends it helps us to inspire and empower more people today if you want to reach out just message me on instagram at nj and until next time go out there and be awesome